red pews without bodies in them. So please feel free to move forward. As we've begun the book of 1 Peter, as you know, this is more or less being team taught. There's about five of us, I think, that are switching on and off, and my lot fell uh, to today. Um, and so we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. 17 to 21. And I've entitled this message, The Motivation for Christian Living in the Fear of God. The Motivation for Christian Living in the Fear of God. Uh, just by way of reminder, this is a, what, what is termed as a general epistle. It's not written to a specific church. It's written to Christians at large. In chapter 1, it says he writes to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout all of those places. So we're not going to look at that. So it's, it's written to Christians who have been scattered about. The purpose of the book we find in chapter 5 and verse 12. Do Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so this was a persecuted people, persecuted Christians who were exiles, and that's who he is writing to. Um, he opens with uh, talking about our protected inheritance, verses 3 to 5. Um, faith through trials, verses 6 to 9, uh, 10 to 12 of chapter 1, this wonderful salvation, this mystery of salvation of which angels long to look into. Last week, I haven't listened to Rob's lesson yet, but on therefore, prepare your minds for action, be sober in spirit, be holy as I am holy. And our section now, I think, is very much connected to what Rob taught on last week. It sort of continues that theme. So let's read the text beginning at verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope is in God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage. We confess that we need to learn much of the proper motivation for living holy lives before you. It's not to earn brownie points, but Lord, the motivation set forth here should encourage each of us to live for your glory and to live upright lives in the fear of God. So help us, Lord, bless our discussion. May this be a fruitful time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we look here, verse 17, I'd like for you to think of as sort of introductory. It sort of introduces the unit of 18 to 21, of which we'll, we'll look at in a moment. So um, he gives additional incentive for living a holy life. And here in verse 17, it's fear of discipline. Every word is packed full of meaning. Notice what he says here. I want to read verse 16 just to get the context. Or 15, beginning of verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior 
because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time on the earth. Now notice he says, if you address as father. In verse 14, he mentioned children. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust. You have that motif of children and father. And so he says, if you address him as father. Now, Old Testament times, the people address God as father. New Testament times as well. Our Lord teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, our father who art in heaven, right? Uh, we're told the whole idea of adoption, Abba, father. And so this, this theme of father and child is carried here. And children, what do children naturally want to do? Imitate, right? They want to imitate their parents. That's, that just comes natural. You don't have to, if, you, if, you're not, if you're doing something a certain way and all of a sudden your children start to mimic that, that's just natural. That's what they want to do. Well, so too, for us, we want to imitate our father. And when it says father here, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges, we think of he's the father, he is the judge as well. What is the idea here? Is it speaking of final judgment, do you think? In this passage, who impartially judges. The whole context isn't speaking of final judgment. It's speaking of the idea of a discipline, a, a father that is looking to you how you lived your lives. That's why he says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. It's talking about today. <laughs> He's the father who judges us, who examines us, who scrutinizes us. And when he says, if you address his father, the idea is to call out. It's present tense. It's a regular, habitual calling for help to our father who cares for us. So in the text, what is the purpose for us to know that God is father and judge? The purpose, he tells us, is so that we would conduct ourselves with fear. So, Therefore, as Christians, we should, as we go about living our lives, when Monday morning comes around and we're in the workplace, we should think that we are living under the eye of God, that He sees all things. And that shouldn't cause us to cower in fear, but He has an eye on His children. Now, what does this mean to fear? In fear during the time of your stay of the earth. What does He mean by that? Let me put it this way. Is your relationship with God such to where there is a dread and a crippling fear that the Father's looking upon me and He's judging me and so you don't know which way to go? Is your relationship with God like that? I hope not. <laughs> it shouldn't be. If, if you understand what salvation is and where the merit of our righteousness comes from, we're, that's not the type of fear that's being spoken of here. It's rather a fear of not wanting to displease the Father who has given His only begotten Son for you. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, as it says in Philippians 4. So our lives should be lived in awe and in reverence of God, who alone is holy, but has provided the holiness that we need to live our lives. And, you know, we, it's exile, so we're exiles, living our lives upon this earth. 
Um, Wayne Grudem says, the privilege of membership in God's family does not lead to presumption that disobedience will be allowed to pass unnoticed or undisciplined. And so it's the fear of the Lord that motivates us to obedience. Um, In Hebrews chapter 12, we don't have time to read the whole passage because the purpose of this is just a brief study. But you have that whole idea here of the Father's discipline. And it says in the concluding verse in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so the Father who looks upon us examining, judging every work, loves us enough that when we go astray to bring out the spiritual paddle, as it were, and to discipline us to get us back. Chapter 12, later in Hebrews 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. So we're to live our lives in reverence and all. Now, ask yourself this question. Well, I'm going to ask you, and then somebody can share, but whom do you feel you must please the most in your life? For young people who are still under the authority of their parents, maybe it's their parents, their wives, maybe it's their husbands, maybe it's an employer, maybe it's a boyfriend, maybe it's a girlfriend. For whom do you feel you must please? Whose opinion of you counts the most? Maybe it's your supervisor. I want to get a raise or whatever. Not if you're self-employed, but if you're, <laughs> right? Um, you know, you, you want to impress that person. Maybe it's your friends that you're trying to impress. Whose love and approval do you feel that you really need to have? What, do you see what the text is speaking of here? Ultimately, it is God. That's who. We have to tear aside social idols or idols of the heart and move that aside. Now, I want you to think, for those of you who have been Christians any amount of time, for a few years or whatever, describe a time when you disobeyed God and you sensed His discipline in your life. Tell us what that looks like. This is varied, it's subjective, I understand that, but um, think of a time when you where you didn't know it, you were going outside of his will or whatever, and you disobeyed, or maybe you willfully disobeyed, and the Lord brought some consequences that you could say, it's probably the, that's the discipline of the Lord, those consequences that I do endure. Nobody sinned. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk. Who will be the first to share? <clears throat> Deepu. Your wife just walked in. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't that. Consequences of that. Excellent example. 
I think, I, mean, I can relate to that example, and probably more than just us two, something in a form, something that's requiring you to be honest on something, and just whatever way that you can justify it. It's a good example. Other examples? Barbara? That's an excellent point, because isn't that true? When we go, and when we talked about this when we were talking about the Holy Spirit and grieving the Spirit, what does that look like? And sometimes what the Lord does is He... I mean, the Holy Spirit's never going to be taken from you if you're a child of God, but He can withdraw His manifestations so that it's like you feel alone and you're walking in the wind constantly. Everything you do, there's 10-pound weights because you, you don't have the joy of the Lord. You don't have the smile of His pleasure upon you. And it can weigh you down until finally you kind of like, oh, I get it. <laughs> I've got some sin I need to, <clears throat> excuse me, to confess to the Lord and to repent of to make that right. Good example. Anyone else want to share? <clears throat> okay, we'll move on. So I, I, the way I look at this, I look at verse 17 as introductory to what comes in 18 to 21. And some think that this might be the a, um, summary of a hymn or something along those lines. But there's three motivations he gives here, and they're all three R's. It's first, your costly redemption in verses 18 and 19. Why should I live in the fear of the Lord? Why should I strive to be holy? Because of, my costly, because of the costly redemption that costs um, the Lord to save me. And then God's clear re- revelation in verse 20 we'll see that Christ was the one who was foreordained to be the Savior. And then finally, the hope of the resurrection and the hope that we have in the gospel comes at the end of verse 21. So, very briefly, your costly redemption, you were not redeemed with any other created thing. Look what it says. Knowing that, now by the way, the, the structure here you could almost say because. So, let's read it with verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear during your time on the stay of the earth because you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited by your fathers. First, he gives the negative of what you were not redeemed by. Now, how do people, now the whole word redeem and redemption is just out of whack today, right? How do people use it typically? If you're watching ESPN, the newscaster, Big Ben seeks to redeem himself in the third quarter, right? It's, it's reflexive, it's speaking of himself, but redemption biblically is being purchased, being ransomed back, and that's what Christ has done for us. Peter shows the surpassing value of the spiritual realities that we have by calling silver and gold perishable. 
the most precious of physical things that are created according to man's view, and the most durable, he calls perishable. And when he says that, it, it, it actually every time it occurs in the New Testament, it means ultimate decay, that it will ultimately decay. And so it's not as though Peter says, oh, you were not redeemed with stones and rocks or sand on the seashore, but he brings out the most precious of silver and gold from your futile way of life. So he mentions these two precious metals, of which there's lots of chatter today. Um, and he mentions these creative things, when comparatively speaking, they are the least perishable. Even silver, when sulfur is put to it, or in some PVC sleeves, will begin to tarnish. Gold also is spoken of, even though it's very versatile. Deepu brought this out when he did the earlier lesson here. Um, still is subject to decay. So, what's the takeaway from this verse? Earthly possessions can never qualify as a payment for souls. doesn't matter how rich you are. doesn't matter how much treasure you have. You cannot purchase someone else's salvation. You can't purchase your own salvation. And we have an example in the Bible of when somebody tried to do this. Simon in Acts 8, do you remember that? Peter chastises him. It says, may your silver and gold perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Of course, redemption carries with it the whole idea that for the Jews of what? What event? What event would the Jews think of when they talk about being redeemed? Exodus, right? Being redeemed from the land, from, the, from bondage and, and being brought out through the Red Sea. That's... What they were, that's what they would often refer to and look back to. In Roman times, you could obtain freedom of a slave by purchasing him with a ransom price and writing the root word of redemption, which is lutro. And so it would be signed with that, set free, payment in full, done. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So he says, we're not redeemed with these perishable things. And then he says, from your futile way of life. Well, why does he want to insult us like that? <laughs> what futile way of life is he speaking of? What does it mean to futile or empty way of life? It, it lacks lasting significance, right? So, and that's the idea. Ray, Ray hit it right on the head. It's without purpose, without meaning, vain. Um, Solomon and Ecclesiastes speaks about that. Ultimately unfruitful and useless. And then he says, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Which forefathers is he talking of here? Is it Jewish? Gentile? Probably both, right? Because it's a mixed people who are scattered that he's writing to. But the point here is that Christ's redemption is so powerful that it can break that generational sin. You know, how one generation after they always just like his grandfather. His grandfather was a bank robber, he's, you know, and so forth. Now, it, it, it can break that. And so myself and my two brothers were the first Christians in my family as far back as I know, which is only two or three generations. 
But so that generational curse has been broken, not by anything in and of us, because we weren't seeking salvation, but God broke in and effectually called us in time because ultimately Christ had redeemed us on the cross. So that generational sin can be broken. In verse 19, he says, but here's the contrast. What have we been redeemed with? With the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. This is the positive aspect, the blood of Christ. It gives the clear outward evidence that it was his very lifeblood that was spilt, his sacrificial death that was a purchase price for sinners. His atonement fully satisfied the wrath of God. We know from Romans chapter 3, and his blood is of infinite value, precious enough to redeem a thousand worlds, a million worlds, if that was God's design. But yet, as far as we know, the elect people of this world is what he purchased. So, what is Peter thinking of when he says, as of a lamb, precious blood as of a lamb unblemished? What does he mean? What does he mean? What, what are we supposed to think of with that? Yes, and so the whole sacrificial system of which blood was involved. <laughs> I'm reading Leviticus right now. There's so much blood I'm swimming in, and I'm wiping my shoes off, and I'm done reading, you know. It's, I mean, it's just blood and sprinkled, you know, it's blood everywhere, you know. I mean, and that's, that's the reality of it, and so that's the idea here. And then those sacrifices, just, well, let's just focus on Passover. That probably is what, what he has in mind, but it's the whole system the Passover lamb had to be perfect, unblemished, one year old, without any defect. Now think of our carnality. If we knew we had to give up you know, something in our flock or something, it's like, well, this one's pretty good. This one's better, but I want to keep that for myself, you know, that kind of thing. No, no. It had to be the best that you had, unblemished, just the right age, and all of that. And so, no doubt, um, the Passover and that was a ritual which was held on the 14th day of Nisan, a month Nisan, and of course, what was it to remember? The redemption that had been wrought by God. And you can find that in Exodus chapter 12. A lamb without blemish, again and again, it occurs in the Old Testament, number 6. Isaiah 53, that great prediction of what our Lord would be, says in chapter 53 and verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. So he was as a lamb. He was the sacrifice. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 9. Actually, I'll, I'm going to take a... I'm going to assign a few verses if we can have a few volunteers. Um, Hebrews 9.12, who would like that one? Okay, Melba. Um, Revelation 5.9. Volunteer, Ray. And then Hebrews 9.14. Jason. And Hebrews 10.19, Matt Malott. Okay. So let's go ahead and just read those and see the New Testament significance here. Beginning with 9.12. 
So he's obtained eternal redemption, and it's not through the blood of lambs or goats or calves, right? But through his own blood. And then the next one is... Yes. So, that beautiful song about the Lord, he is the Lamb, right? The Lamb of God, and uh, the one who is the Lion and the Lamb. You you see that significance there in Revelation 5, we're not going to look at all that. Please don't be distracted by the, is it a raven or something? A large crow. So, I think he got the wrong memo, he thought you were teaching, Rob, and that's when he was here last time, so... Okay. Hebrews nine fourteen. So you can see all that focuses. I mean, it's really parallel to, to our text as well. But again, it's how much more the blood of Christ shall serve to cleanse our conscience, to serve the living God. And then finally, Hebrews 10.19. So even the New Testament has a lot to say about blood, and the blood of Jesus in particular, which was the precious blood that was shed on our behalf. So we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Um, We didn't sing it today, but that Philip Bliss hymn, Redeemed. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse He set me free. So Christ is our Redeemer. So that's the redemption. Now in verse 20, let's consider God's clear revelation. And this verse is a little hard to understand, at least in the NAS, as far as the wording goes. It says, For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times, for the sake of you. We don't typically say for the sake of you. We'd say for your sake, right? Um, but the literal rendering uh, there. So, the idea of being manifest, being revealed, um, here uh, is, is what's in view here. Appearing, uh, those are all synonyms. So Christ was chosen in eternity past to be the redeemer of the elect. This is the second reason that Christians should live in the fear of God because the Son of God was ordained, preordained, to be the only Savior of the world. Um, Whether he was foreknown, foreordained, or chosen, the different translations translate it differently, but God has determined that Jesus' atonement would be the effectual means to save his people. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 23, I'll just read it. Peter preaching says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And I'll read verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible to be held by its power. So, um, the idea that it's the foreordained plan of God. And when it says, uh, before the foundation of the world, it just means before, meaning the creation of the world. 
But then he says, in these last times, uh, what's, what's the contrast that he's trying to, to make here in verse 20? What's the contrast? Anybody see it? Beginning and the end, right? And the beginning is when? Right. And the end is, is really, well, the end is now. So it's, it's the beginning and now for us, right? So in the beginning, before even time began, Christ was chosen in eternity, but he was revealed in time. And it says, for our sake. So the plan for God's people was unfulfilled until it was made manifest in time. And it says here, in these last times has appeared for your sake. There's been past times, but now in this last time, the totality of time, he has been revealed. And then lastly, resurrection. So redemption, re- revelation, and then we are, it is secured by resurrection. And so for these readers, um, like these readers, you have never seen Jesus, but yet you believe in him. Look at the text. Who, speaking of Christ, through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So this phrase here, more likely some type of a Christian saying or a hymn, through him we are believers, we've been raised, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. The resurrection is what proved and secured God's cosmic plan for all of God's people. Raising Jesus from the dead furnished proof for all men that He is indeed the Savior and that the Father is satisfied with the price that the Son paid for the redemption of man. So you ask yourself the question, why am I sitting here today and why do I have faith in God? Why is it? Because he was raised from the dead, ultimately, because he's breathed life into you. He's secured salvation. And the resurrection is a key doctrine. I just read the Acts 20 um, and 24, when he raised him from the dead for proof. But Romans 4, 25, 24 and 25, says, For our sake also, to whom it it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So he's raised because of our justification. Now, let me ask you, how does the doctrine of the resurrection encourage you today? In what ways, I mean, I've just read a a couple of them, but in what ways as Christians does this encourage us in our walk today to live unto the Lord? Right, and so to, I'll summarize, I'll just put a, a slight, twi- slight twist, but you're exactly right, Ray. There's no, I don't think there's a wrong answer here. What encourages you today is that we too will be raised. <laughs> we'll be raised from the sinful body and we'll be with him face to face. We'll receive glorified bodies. That's encouraging. 
If you fight and if you battle remaining sin like I do, that's encouraging. That someday it's going to be done. And we'll put on the immortal and we'll be with Him. What else? If Christ is raised from the dead, what does that mean for God's people? Okay, we'll get to see Him, yes. And what is Jesus doing? Is he bowling or something in the meantime, or what? <laughs> Sorry, what is he doing? Okay, <laughs> praying for uh, interceding. He's interceding for us. That that really, when as I'm struggling, as I'm battling sin, I know that he is praying for me because he is raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God. And yes, he's preparing a place for us, whatever that looks like um, spiritually or however you take that exactly. He's preparing a a place for us. Um, Assurance also that Jesus really did purchase a people. He really did die. He really did pay the redemption cost for my salvation. And then this last phrase, it's beautiful. He says here, um, so that your faith who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. The implication is since Jesus was raised, that we as Christians can now have the assurance that we too will be raised from the dead. After telling the readers here to live holy lives and to fear discipline, not, not cowardly fear, but live in reverence and awe because your Father loves you and will discipline you. And he gives the reason because we have such a great redemption, God planted a long time ago. It's for your sake, and he raised him from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, glorious passage, um, certainly on the resurrection. I'll just read these couple of verses in verse 13 and 14. It says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, and your faith is in vain. Another reason to be encouraged. And so that's why Peter knits this together and says, so that all of these things, the redemption, the revelation for your sakes, and then through him, now the resurrection, your faith and your hope are in God. So let me ask you something, theological question, very briefly. Um, When did Christ determine When did the Godhead determine that Christ would redeem fallen humanity? At what point in time? Before creation, right. It's before creation, right? So you mean he didn't create Adam and Eve, and then, whoops, somebody, oh no, I didn't play, okay, I'm going to get the right now. It's in eternity past, that's when it was planned. So it didn't take God by surprise. And normally, the remedy comes after the disease is diagnosed. God provides the remedy before the disease of sin even happens. Listen to John Calvin. He says, For herein shines forth more the unspeakable goodness of God, that he anticipated our disease by the remedy of his grace and provided the restoration of life before the first man had fallen into death. And he ends with hope. I want you to look in verse 13, where Rob began last week, and maybe he brought this out. Prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace of God, 
And now he ends this section with hope. They're like bookends. It's an incluso here. And so he ends here that your hope is in God. So since 1 Peter deals with our pilgrim life on this earth, that we will encounter difficulties and persecutions, the idea of this eschatological hope, as Ray shared, that we will see him face to face is another encouragement for us to press on and really the climax of this section. So, in conclusion, how should we live? Uh, Is there any greater motive to live a holy life but that Jesus' precious blood was shed for you? His mission is to make you holy. He died that he might have a people zealous for good works. Not that we're earning salvation, but a response to the great salvation that we've received. And find delight in keeping his commandments. Jesus has provided all the righteousness we need. And all will stand before this great judge in the last day. Uh, Peter talks about it in other places in this letter. That he will judge, right? And judgment begins with the household of God. And so we have a responsibility to live our lives pleasing to him. Any final comments before we close? A rich section of scripture here and encourage you to read ahead. Um, the next time we'll go from 22 up to 2-3. The chapter break there is unfortunate, but that's really one unit. And um, so read ahead, read this book. Hopefully these studies are helpful. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this book. We thank you so much for using the Apostle Peter, one who as it were, put his foot in his mouth so many times uh, during your earthly ministry, and yet, Lord, you used him so powerfully at Pentecost and even many years afterwards with the penning of these letters. May we find the encouragement in these letters that we're meant to receive, and may we be able to encourage one another in the faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.